Welcome back to another episode of the Rage Podcast brought to you by the Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRISE. My name is Cars Fox and I am your host for this season. One of our upcoming themes for this season is on mass incarceration, mass criminalization, the criminal justice system in general, and policing. Our guest for this first episode is Jim Freeman. Jim Freeman is a civil rights lawyer and author who works with communities of color across the U.S. to address issues of systemic racism and create positive social change. He has supported dozens of grassroots-led efforts to end mass criminalization and incarceration, achieve education equity, dismantle the school-to-prison pipeline, protect immigrants' rights, and create a more inclusive and participatory democracy. Freeman directs the Social Movement Support Lab, which provides multidisciplinary assistance to communities fighting for racial justice. He was formerly a senior attorney at Advancement Project, a national civil rights organization where he directed the Ending the Schoolhouse to Jailhouse Track Project. He served under President Obama as a commissioner on the White House Initiative on Educational Excellence for African Americans. Freeman is a graduate of the University of Notre Dame and Harvard Law School and was an editor on the Harvard Law Review. He is a former Skadden Fellow, clerk for Judge James R. Browning on the Ninth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals, and has been an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center and the University of Denver Stern College of Law. So first off, just thank you for being here and sharing this space. I like to begin these episodes by kind of learning more about you personally and your background. So what inspired you initially to become involved in dismantling systems of oppression, such as the school to prison pipeline, mass incarceration, and anti-immigrant policies? Or kind of another way to phrase that, I guess, would be what initially inspired and then continues to drive your passion for your work. Yeah, you know, I um, I didn't really have any personal experience with that growing up, um, since we're um, only audio here, not visual. Um, <laughs> I am white, and so I hadn't experienced systemic racism myself. Um, but what I can say, at least for myself, is that I was curious enough about how other people lived to want to learn from their experiences or, or to want to have experiences myself that exposed me to how other people lived. So, you know, in high school, for example, I worked, um, I worked at this uh, horse racing track outside of Chicago, and I worked with undocumented folks from Mexico, and I worked with black folks from Chicago who had to um, travel 25 miles just to find a job that paid them more than minimum wage. Um, and, you know, and in college, I did service projects in Appalachia, and I did you know, service projects in West Side of Chicago. And when I studied abroad, I didn't just go to the touristy places. I, I really wanted to see how, you know, all the residents of a, a particular place live. Um, and I did volunteer work and all that stuff. And, um, and I asked a lot of questions and I tried to observe as best I could. And, and so I saw just like a little bit of the reality of systemic racism. And what I saw made me angry and it made me want to learn more and want to do something um, to help. And the more I learned and the more I did, the more angry I got. <laughs> and then on and on it went um, until, you know, I couldn't see myself doing anything else. You know, because once you see it, once you see what that looks like, you can't unsee it. 
mm. right? It's in there. It's in your head now. And so at that point, it becomes a choice. Like, are you going to live your life and ignore it? Like, pretend that you didn't see it? Or are you going to try and do something about it? So that's how I got into it. Um, and then, you know, as for why I keep doing it, you know, um, I don't know, the question that always pops in my head when somebody asks me that is, like, what else should I be doing instead? You know what I mean? It's because it's, because um, I've done other things in my life. I've had lots of other types of jobs. Yeah. Um, and this feels way more important, way more meaningful, and way more rewarding on a personal level. Um, and then, you know, ultimately, like, I want to be part of the movement that dismantles systemic racism once mm -hmm. and for all. Um, I think that's doable within our lifetimes. And I want to be part of it. Um, I want to be... I want this to be the time in which we finally create a truly racially just country, and I want to contribute to that. Mm. I like your optimism because I think that's something that a lot of people kind of go without in terms of actually being able to envision a world where that's possible and envision a world where we don't have these systemic inequalities, we don't have things like that. So I think it's kind of a refreshing thing to hear that in terms of it being possible and not something we're like, oh, things will always exist, or racism will always be here, or we'll always be like, unjust. Do you hear that often within your work? Yeah, of course. Uh, but but interestingly, it's by people who aren't really, by usually people outside of the work, okay. right? Like people who don't take that on full time. Mm -hmm. um, because to do it full time, like I already talked a lot about my own anger, mm -hmm. um, and that hasn't gone away. Yeah. But if you're only fueled by anger, that's a pretty short ride. You know what I mean? Like you can't sustain that over time. There has to be something else there. And, um, and so I think you have to be optimistic to yeah. do this work. But the other thing is like, I know enough history, um, to know about what has been gained. And I've been fortunate enough to be part of enough successful efforts, um, to know, that what I'm talking about is possible, mm -hmm. you know, because I've seen things move. I've seen communities change. Yeah. I've seen systems change. I've been part of those efforts. And so for me, it's, um, it's, uh, you know, it's, I don't want to, to minimize the personal sacrifices and commitment and investment that goes into successful movements. But, um, uh, putting that aside for a moment, um, it really is sort of a math equation. Like, <laughs> if we have enough people um, with a good enough strategy that's willing to sustain that over a long enough time, then we win. And if we don't, then we lose. But at least we know what we're trying to get to and how we can get there. Yeah. So that really, you know, uh, on a daily basis is sort of what winds my clock. Okay. So kind of going into more of defining the terms that we're talking about. So when we're talking about systemic racism, how does that look like in terms of the conversation with mass incarceration, mass criminalization, anti-immigrant policies? How does that fit into that scope? Um, yeah, I, so I don't even know how you can have a conversation about those issues without talking about systemic racism because, well, to use one example, so, so I'm white, much of my life I've lived in predominantly white communities. If you talk to people in those communities about police, what they say is that they're helpers or heroes. 
or, you know, in most white people's eyes, um, the word sort of police is synonymous with safety, yeah. right? And, and so for most of those folks, like police, like if you take out like traffic stops, um, for most white folks, police are practically a non-entity in their lives. Um, and I include myself in that. So in my, in my work, in my job, I encounter a lot of police um, um, all the time, really. Um, but if you take that out, like the last time I think that uh, a police officer um, spoke to me outside of my work um, or outside of giving me a speeding ticket um, was like over 25 years ago yeah. when I was a teenager, right? Um, so you have that on one side. And the other side, for the last 20 years, I've been a civil rights lawyer working with predominantly mm -hmm. black and brown communities um, across the U.S. So I've seen up close what the criminal legal system looks like within, you know, Philadelphia and Chicago and New York and L.A. and Miami and Phoenix and lots of other cities where I've done work. And what I found is that most white people have absolutely no idea what that looks like. Um, they don't know what it's like to have an overwhelming police presence around at all times. They don't know what it's like to have um, a community treated as a war zone. They don't know what it's like to have police and prosecutors opt for really hostile and degrading treatment of the people they're supposed to be protecting and serving. Um, and they don't know what it's like to live in a place where many members of your community are yanked out of that community and put in a cage for doing the same things that happen within predominantly white communities all the time, but with very different consequences. So unless um, you've seen that and how different that is from the average white experience, it can be um, it can be hard to even believe that it that it exists. So what I wanted to do with with the book um, was to share that perspective mm -hmm. with others so they could start to appreciate just how vastly oversized, overbroad, and destructive the system is. Mm -hmm. um, because for me personally, the more exposure I got to the criminal justice system mm -hmm. um, in action within BIPOC communities, the more I was able to see um, what the residents of those communities see on a daily basis the more I came to appreciate that, um, that these um, so-called radical ideas like defunding the police, like abolition and so on, are really obvious and necessary solutions. Yeah. Something that you highlighted a lot was the idea of how exposure enlightens you to certain realities that you may not have noticed before. So in terms of like how to bring this conversation to a wider audience, how much is exposure necessary in that conversation? And for yourself personally, do you think you may have gotten to where you are today without the exposure that you experienced? You know, I would like to, I'd like to believe that I would have. It shouldn't require that. Like uh, we should all want um, for each other what we want for ourselves, right? And we should not um, live in such a bubble that we're oblivious to 
radically different experiences um, that um, other people are having, you know, um, nearby to us in the same cities, in the same states, in the same country. Um, and, um, but, you know, for me personally, like, for me, it was, it was important to see some of it, at least yeah. to open my eyes a little bit. Um, and that's, but that's one of the really nice things about, about movements. Like, so take yeah. George Floyd, for example, and the, the movement that was really intensified, um, last summer. Like there were a lot of people whose eyes were opened up yeah. and who started to want to get involved in new ways. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and there have been a lot of incidents like that. Um, and the Black Lives Matter movement, of course, is a huge part of that over the last five or six years, like more people wanting to get involved in politics. But that also tends to you know, have its peaks and valleys, and a lot of it depends on who happens to be in the White House at, at the time. Um, but... Um, but it's important. That's why one one really important part of movement work is um, it's sharing stories. And yeah. you know, my story is not particularly important. What's what is really important is the stories and experiences of those who are most directly impacted. Mm -hmm. And as a society, we do a really poor job of paying attention to those stories. Like you don't see those stories on nightly news. Yeah. Right, you don't see stories of folks who are directly impacted by the stuff I was just talking about in the criminal justice system. That's not on there. Um, at best, you get you know a policy advocate or a lawyer who has some experience, um, uh, maybe talking about it. But we don't hear it directly from people, mm -hmm. and that was really what um, transformed my worldview the most. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like hearing the the talking heads on CNN or something like that talk yeah. about it. It was when people whose lives were upended yeah. unjustly, um, when I heard it directly from them. That's what that's what moved me. That's what moved you know. That's what moves people generally. Um, and so I think one key thing we have to do is is find new ways to share those stories. That's true. There's something you said that I just want to highlight really quick. You said that your story is not important. So I would like to bash that sentence. And say that your story is important, and it's a big piece of why we're here today. And you work with your book, Rich Thanks to Racism. Your work as a lawyer, like your story matters, and it's very impactful. Well, thank you. I guess what I mean to say is, it's certainly. I think everybody, everybody's life experience, everybody's personal story is important and valuable, and everybody has one of those. Mm -hmm. um, I don't happen to think mine is any <laughs> more important or valuable <laughs> than anything else. I do think that you know that um, there's work that I've done that gives me some additional knowledge and information to share on these particular topics. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm also very clear that, you know, when it comes to the racial justice movement, um, that the true, most authentic, and most effective leadership is from those who are most impacted by that. And I am honored to be able to support their leadership. And I'm I'm privileged to be able to dedicate my career to helping to elevate that leadership. Mm -hmm. That's that's really what I wanted to mean, awesome. or what I wanted to say, rather. Got you, got you. Um, there was something that you said when you were talking that I was thinking about is a lot of how, even during the civil rights movement, like the use of television was really important for that movement in terms of getting to see how the protesters were being treated in a way that 
couldn't really remove you from the situation. I think today, like how we use social media a lot and where you see these videos, which sometimes the videos can be problematic and that they're re-traumatizing to the people who already are aware of those realities, but in many ways they kind of force people who might not be to be confronted with the reality of others' experiences. But kind of shifting into the work with Social Movement Support Lab and the work that it does with movements specifically and helping them push forward and giving them the resources that they need. One of the things that Social Movement Support Lab does is provide accessible and interdisciplinary assistance. So within movement specifically, why is interdisciplinary assistance necessary? Yeah, so the work that I've done in my career and the work that the Social Movement Support Lab does um, is it partners with grassroots organizations mm -hmm. um, in all across the U.S. in black and brown communities. So I've worked in, you know, in Mississippi, throughout Florida, Oakland, cities I mentioned before, Chicago, L.A., New York, and so on. Um, and these are, you know, I think really the places in the U.S. where systemic racism is the deepest. Yeah you know, where young people are routinely pushed out of school and criminalized, where ICE is terrorizing immigrant communities, where mass incarceration is its most devastating, where yeah. there always seems to be enough money for more police officers or a new jail, but there never seems to be enough for mental and behavioral health or a new park or a community center or affordable housing or, yeah. you know, things like that. And so, um, the communities that I work with are trying to address those mm -hmm. injustices. Um, and what I try to do is, is help them by, to, is to expand their capacity to wage the type of organizing and advocacy campaigns that can address those types of issues. But the reality is that those communities are often severely under-resourced yeah. relative um, to their opposition. So, you know, these really just aren't fair fights um, and the many powerful people and organizations that they're going up against they have far more ability to get their messages out in the media they have far more ability to influence policymakers they have um, far more ability to use the legal system to their advantage so to actually expand their bandwidth um, and sort of level the odds a little bit we need policy experts, we need yeah. legal experts, we need communications experts, we need professional researchers, mm -hmm. um, and lots of other folks, um, just to sort of get them uh, to the point where um, they have a realistic chance of, yeah. of starting to dismantle those systems. So for someone who might be listening to this episode today, what are kind of the action steps that an individual person can make or a community can make if they're like, I want to get involved, I want to do something about mass, and criminaliz mass criminalization, mass incarceration, et cetera, et cetera, how would you kind of steer them in the direction to be able to do so? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things um, that individual people um, can do. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I want to talk about what I think is the most important thing Sounds that good. an individual, individual person can do. So. You know, there's really only, so in, in the book I talk um, not only about systemic racism, but strategic racism, mm -hmm. right? How um, systemic racism, racism is used um, 
particularly by the ultra-wealthy, to expand their wealth and power, um, how it serves a strategic purpose for them. And so that if you um, sort of follow the money um, behind mass incarceration, mass criminalization, school privatization, you know, um, anti-immigrant policies, et cetera, what you find is that it's actually a very small number of very wealthy people who are driving those efforts. And so when you're dealing with that reality, there's really only one effective counterweight to the power of that kind of organized wealth, and that's the power of organized people, mm-hmm. right? So to, to resist the what is ultimately a corporate America and Wall Street agenda um, and ultimately advance an, uh, another agenda that's more favorable to low-income, working-class, middle-class families, we need to build people-powered organizations. Mm-hmm. And those types of mass organizations, they really do represent the difference between winning and losing, you know, between having, you know, a powerful organized force pushing for change and having just a large number of isolated voices in the wilderness, right? So, so you can have a million protesters out in the street yelling about a particular injustice, mm-hmm. but um, if those million protesters are a million individuals, a million atomized people, <laughs> Um, then whatever impact is created by that protest will quickly dissipate. But if those million protesters are part of organizations that can build off the momentum from that protest and, um, and really channel it into positive social change efforts, then we can start to collectively shift the needle. So the first thing I recommend to people um, is that they contribute whatever time, energy, and money they have to grassroots racial justice organizations. Because, like I said, these are the folks who are really leading the effort to dismantle systemic racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but they're also, also, like I mentioned, usually severely under-resourced relative to their opposition. So yeah. there may not be anything um, more valuable that a person can do than contribute to their work. Um, and if folks need a place to start, um, you know, in my book and on the website for my book, um, richthanksToracism.com, um, I list some of the best and most strategic racial justice organizations in the country, and I would awesome. they're very much encourage folks to check it out. Awesome, awesome. I'll have those linked down into the description. There was one thing that, or I meant to ask you beforehand, that ties into Rich Thanks to Racism. In terms of the prison system being kind of an industry and being... Um, that being a profit for mm-hmm. those who are involved in the criminal justice system. Can you expand a bit more on kind of that idea of prisons being profitable? You know, one thing to think about with regard to, to the criminal justice system, you know, it was over a year ago mm-hmm. now that George Floyd was murdered. And we heard over and over again that it was a wake-up call for the nation. But the thing is, we never actually woke up, right? Because if we had, we would have come together by now as a country around real solutions to these issues. Or we would have at least started a process. Um, And we would have addressed the vastly oversized and violent criminal justice system that's being used within black and brown communities as a catch-all solution for an enormous variety of public health and safety issues. 
because these policies and systems are at the very root of what killed George Floyd, what killed Eric Garner, what killed so many others. Um, they are the, the dynamics that make BIPOC folks dying at the hands of the police a completely predictable result. Mm -hmm. But because we couldn't summon the collective urgency to address them, the same things are still happening. So let's talk about why we haven't addressed them. Because it, it's not because we don't know how. <laughs> it, there, we know what the solutions are to these things. It's because there's a very well-funded opposition that stands in the way. So you have organizations like ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, that represents hundreds of the largest corporations in the U.S. that has been working for decades to pass the tough-on-crime policies that form the backbone of our criminal justice system and that have fueled mass incarceration. You have super wealthy individuals um, like um, Charles Koch and all the other billionaires that they've organized, that he's organized, pouring tens of millions of dollars into various right-wing think tanks and advocacy organizations that have been pushing this agenda, this mass criminalization and incarceration agenda um, for decades and continue to do so today. So you have one of, those, one of those think tanks, the Heritage Foundation, which is in DC, that after the uprising last summer, what they decided to do was launch a back the blue police pledge that when I last checked has been signed by 205 members of Congress. So these are 205 members of Congress who have vowed to continue supporting the status quo in law enforcement in this country. And one of those members of Congress, Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas, probably one of the leading contenders to be the next Republican um, candidate for president, who tweets out that in the U.S. we have a major under-incarceration problem. Mm -hmm. Now bear in mind that you know, we have the highest incarceration rate in the world yeah. and, and the largest incarcerated population. So it takes some seriously twisted logic <laughs> to get yourself to that point. But this is what modern day systemic racism looks like. Um, um, we implement these public policies that we know are gonna inflict needless harm on large groups of people of color, that we know will perpetuate racial inequities, that we know will even lead to people being killed. And then when that harm becomes apparent, we fail to address it appropriately in significant part because it is economically beneficial for the ultra-wealthy, um, which is what I refer to as, as strategic racism. So in, in the book, I sort of break down what that looks like, how they actually make money off this system, how it serves their interests. There's a lot that goes into it. But in a nutshell, um, mass incarceration and mass criminalization has been very, very good for the ultra-wealthy in yeah. this country. And they have fought very hard to protect it. Um, and folks need to be aware of that um, because if they think that just because they're on the right side of the argument that that's going to lead to change, um, I can speak from a lot of personal experience that that is not the case. Mm -hmm. We'll also have your book social movement support lab and any other links you would like for our audience to have in description boxes awesome. so they'll be able to be accessible to them and then thank you for coming here oh and my thank pleasure you for making time for to me. be here thank you for tuning in to another episode of the rage podcast the rage podcast is a product of the interdisciplinary research institute for the study of inequality for more information about us and the work that we do, please visit irise.du.edu.
edu. To ensure that we can continue to bring you quality content, please be sure to subscribe or follow, like, and share on the platform that you're listening to us on. Once again, this is the Rage Podcast, and thank you so much for tuning in.